Bhagavad Gita, there's a very beautiful verse. Matras parashas tukunteya sitosna sukadukata. This first tells that things are always changing in this world because the whole of creation is built on the principle of dualities. Just like a coin, there's a head and there's a tails. You can't have one without the other if you wish to have that coin. If you say, I only want the head side. <laughs> All the tails comes with it. <laughs> and it's going to flip over in due course of time. And then flip back. And then flip. <laughs> Happiness, distress, honor, dishonor, pleasure, pain, success, failure, victory, defeat, health, disease, birth, death. Everything's in a state of changing. Because everything in creation is under the power of time, Kala. Time is dynamic. It's quite incredible. Can you see time? Can't feel time? Can't touch time? Can't smell it? can't hear it. It's the subtlest thing there is within creation. But yet, that invisible time is going to burn out the sun, dry up every ocean, pulverize every planet. And what to speak of our little bodies? They don't last very long. Armies cannot stop its progress with all its nuclear arsenals. Beauty cannot seduce it. Even the greatest scientists and technologists cannot hold it back for even a moment. Not even bribes. And because everything is constantly under the power of time, everything changes. At one time, we're little old seeds in the embryo of our mother, and we become little babies, and become beautiful little girls like Shanti, dancing so nicely. And then we become teenagers. That's when things start becoming interesting, <laughs> sometimes unpredictable, and then we get older, then we get old, <laughs> and then we get more old, and you don't want to get older, but it doesn't matter how much money you have or how much political connections you have good you're a singer or anything else, <laughs> you're going to die <laughs> physically. So everything's changing. And within the changes of these life cycles comes all the experiences we have in life. And this beautiful verse in Bhagavad Gita tells that just like the winter and summer seasons, here in New York, you have good experience. Summer's so hot, and winter's so cold. You can't just decide, this year we have voted there should not be a winter season. We'll come. So, the non-permanence appearance of happiness, distress, and all of these other things, they're coming and going just like the winter and summer seasons. A 
a wise person is one who tolerates them without being disturbed. Now, on the path of bhakti and in the path of life itself, what does it really mean to tolerate the ever-changing circumstances of the world? Sometimes pleasing, sometimes unpleasing. It doesn't just mean gritting your teeth and saying, I'm going to get through this somehow or other, I'm going to survive. That's not what the Bhagavad Gita is talking about as far as tolerance. It means whatever situation we're in, we see an opportunity to grow in it. We see and take the opportunity to have a deeper realization of our true self of God and each other in that situation. Challenges are the most healthy experiences for spiritual growth and even for success in the world. From a spiritual perspective, when there are serious challenges, we humble ourselves before a higher power. And we understand the necessity. It's not just something routine when there's an emergency. There's a necessity. And to take that opportunity is how we truly grow. But everyone's human nature is we want to select just the right challenges that we, that we like. Yes, I'm willing to grow in challenges, but, but I'm going to put my order in for the type of challenges. But if it's what you like and if it's what you expect, it's not a challenge at all. It's when things really are difficult. Can I give you a contemporary ex um, analogy? Because yesterday I was speaking from all these scriptures from thousands and millions of years ago. But today I'm going to speak something from about six weeks ago. <laughs> I was in California. In California there's a drought. Do you all know about that drought? really serious drought. And when I was in Los Angeles area, so many people were talking about the drought. Even very wealthy people. I talked to some, and they live in beautiful homes, mansions, Hollywood, Beverly Hills, Bel Air, and they're not allowed to turn on their sprinklers in their backyard except like once a week for a few minutes and they spend tens and thousands of dollars in their gardens, and they can't water it, because there's not enough water. It's a serious drought. But a little later, I was in Northern California, where the drought is even worse. And I went with a friend to a redwood forest. And as we were walking through this redwood forest, we happened to see a Chinese park ranger with a group of American tourists all around her. And usually I'm not so much inclined toward being around American tourists when I go to a forest. <laughs> Other times it's you know, more natural, but when I go to the forest, I try to escape these things. So I was kind of walking a little faster. <laughs> but then I thought, let me hear what this park ranger is going to say, because there might be a good lesson. And brothers and sisters, it really was. It was kind of a life-changing message. Can I share it with you? She was talking about the drought and how incapacitating and deadly the drought was to trees. Because we all know 
trees get water from their roots, and from those roots, distribute the water or channel the water through every part of the tree. And I was, when she was talking like this, I was remembering a verse from Srimad Bhagavatam, where it describes if you water the root of the tree, that water naturally extends to every leaf and branch and, and flower. And similarly, when we awaken our love for God, for Bhagavan, for Sri Krishna, then that love naturally extends to everyone and everything. Because aham sarvasya prabhava matu sarvam prabhartate. The absolute truth is the root, the cause of all causes, the source of everything. And this is the true test of love for God. You can't love God and hate anyone. The Supreme Father, Mother, Mamaivam So Jivaloke, every living being is part. And Mother Nature is God's property. If we love God, we have to honor and live in harmony with, never to exploit the person you love or the people connected to those you love, but to serve with compassion. That is the principle. That's what happens when we water the root of the tree of our heart. Now back to the redwood forest. <laughs> she was saying that this drought has crippled so many trees and so many are dying everywhere there's no water. And she waved her hand at these gigantic redwood trees. And she said, do you notice the other trees don't have many leaves? Some of them don't have any leaves. Some of them are dead. But the redwood trees are full of leaves. How is that? There hasn't been proper water of rain for the roots in months. And all the streams that come by and usually water, they're dried up. There's no water for the roots. How do they keep growing? Then she told. In Northern California, there's fog. Now, nobody likes fog. At least most people don't like fog. Because when you just, really heavy fog, you can't drive in it because you And boats have to stop. They can't even go in the ocean when there's heavy fog. And in New Delhi, there's fog in the winter. And almost every other day, the airport is completely closed down. And all the hundreds and hundreds of flights are canceled. Because you can't fly in fog, at least take off. So fog is really an inconvenience. And usually when we talk about fog, it's not in a very flattering way. Usually when somebody's kind of ignorant, we say you're fogged over. <laughs> right? The fog of war, the fog of greed, the fog of ego. So it's usually seen as something negative. But the redwood tree is teaching us how to see something wonderful in fog. Because fog doesn't reach the roots where they get their water. Are you following me so far? What the redwood tree has learned to do, not from the bottom of the tree, which is the orthodox way the trees <laughs> live, but they're very unorthodox. <laughs> they adjust to time and place. The very, very top of the tree, the leaves, 
And redwood leaves are like little needles, like little hard needles. Those redwood leaves, they get covered with the fog and they absorb it. And that fog goes into the leaf, into the twig, into the branch, and circulates through the entire tree from the top down. The forest ranger said, every day, each of these trees, from the fog that practically no other tree can access anything from, from that, each tree derives three to five hundred gallons of water. And they're growing, and they're green. And they look pretty happy to me. <laughs> so it's a story of how these trees adjust to the situation and tolerate it. Not tolerate it by just saying, oh, I've just got to wait till the water comes. But tolerate it by actually seeing an opportunity. <coughs> to see the invisible. To do the impossible. That's vision. And similarly, in our lives, whatever it may be, in the Bible it is said, seek and ye shall find. Knock, and the door will open. I remember when I was a little boy, I heard something. I'm not going to tell you where I heard it from, but you probably know. <laughs> <laughs> but it is said that when God closes the door, he always opens a window. So if we're just looking at the door and saying, he's closed the door on me, then you're stuck. <laughs> but if you look around, you'll see that there's always a window. So to, to see opportunities. And in order to see the opportunities in situations, two things are very important. One is we have to be grateful. If we're ungrateful, we can't see it. When we have a grateful heart for what we have and what we, what possibilities and what opportunities are there, then we actually see it. We're receptive. Gratitude and humility also. Humility in the sense that what I do is not dependent on things going my way. Doesn't matter how things go. We were discussing yesterday, um, Jatayu, he fought to rescue Sita and he lost and he died. But Ram was so pleased with him, he gave him supreme liberation. And Hanuman, he fought to rescue Sita, and he won. And Hanuman and Ram embraced him and gave him perfection too. Yeah. So they were both equal in the sense of their spiritual accomplishment and their destination. Because it's the sincerity of intent that's important. And we could learn this from the redwood tree even when the unwanted situations and foggy conditions come in our life. How can I adjust myself to get closer to God, to grow, and to do something wonderful? And if that's our intent, we'll find the way. Absolutely, 100%, we will find the way. Maybe not the way we planned. <laughs> but if everything went according to the way we planned, we would really be in big trouble. <laughs> it's quite stagnating. So I'd like to give 
a very special example in my life on this very special day in my life. This year is the 50th anniversary of when our guru, A.C. Bhaktivedanta Swami Prabhupada, left India to board a cargo ship to come to America. It's the year he arrived in America. And today is Prabhupada's birthday. He was born the day after John Mastani. So may I speak something about the subject? Srila Prabhupada was from Calcutta. He was born in 1896. In 1922, one of his friends said, there's a really nice holy man, Sadhu, that's speaking tonight. I want to take you to see him. And Prabhupada, whose name was Abhai Charan at the time, he said, I've seen so many sadhus, and I'm, you know, I'm not interested. He was a very, very deeply spiritual person. But there's all kinds of sadhus, actually. <laughs> So the person kind of dragged him to go. So he went. He was on a rooftop. This was 1922. And Abhay Prabhupada, he bowed down. And as soon as he bowed down, the sadhu said to him, you are an intelligent man, young man. You should take the message of Lord Chaitanya, love for Krishna, in the English language to the whole world. And he got up, bowed down. I just met this person. He's giving me a lifetime instruction. <laughs> it's quite disarming, actually. And at that time, Prabhupada was a very, very strong follower of Mahatma Gandhi. He wore the khadi. How many of you were around in the 1960s in the counterculture? Omega is a lot of a lot of us creatures. <laughs> Anyways, in the 1960s, if a man were to wear his hair long, it's a declaration of of independence against the whole established society. I remember where I went to college, just be, having long hair, police would would tear gas us, stop us and harass us, threaten us. You know, all we were doing was walking. <laughs> well, at the time when Mahatma Gandhi was um, pushing forward his freedom movement to wear khadi, which is very traditional, coarse cotton dress, was a statement that we want the British out forever. And the British ruled India on every level. So he told his guru that, who's gonna listen to India when we're subjugated by the British? First, the dignity of our nation must be there and we should get independence because that's what he was doing. And he thought that was really a good argument. And Srila Bhakti Siddhanta Saraswati Thakur said, he said, we cannot wait for political situations to change. He said, these things are always changing. Who's in power, who's not in power, who's subjugated, who's subjugating. But there's one eternal necessity that we're all eternal souls. We're all parts of God. And yet, because we're forgetful of that, we're subjected to so much suffering, so much ignorance, and ultimately, old age, disease, and death. His terminology for this inner awareness, this self-realization was Krishna consciousness. 
He said, this is the only true necessity. If we don't clean the ecology of our own hearts, clean up the greed and the anger and the selfish passions and the envy and the, and the, and the illusions, if we don't clean that, then we're going to manifest outside of ourselves the condition of our hearts. And that's why there's so much turmoil and there's so much hatred and there's so much sectarianism and there's so much environmental um, exploitation. Because the ecology of the heart is really dirty. We have to clean it. This cannot wait for political parties to change. <laughs> Prabhupada listened very carefully and accepted but he had just been married and he just had a child. So he couldn't you know, just leave everything and go all over the world. That was 1922. About 10 years later, he was initiated by his guru at Prayag, the place of the Kumbha Mela. And later on, after he He fulfilled his responsibilities to his family. He was constantly always meditating on that instruction he received to be an instrument of compassion, to take the message of Gita and the holy name of God to the world. In 1959, he became a Swami, renounced. The Swami is, uh, is like a priest in the sense of a life of renunciation, where you give up a small family to make the whole human society and all living beings your family. And you have no other responsibility but serving everyone. <laughs> That's what Swami is supposed to mean. And he lived in Vrindavan the holiest of all holy places for devotees of Krishna, where Krishna personally lived for 5,000 years ago. He was there. And everywhere you go in Vrindavan, there's a place where Krishna did something. <laughs> and there's, it's just a village. When I first got there in 1971, it was really quiet. There was not a single car there was only a few shops, but there was 5,000 temples in the area. And everywhere you go, you just hear kirtan. Sometimes they're in temples, and in every home. I remember, because I was living like a sadhu, and I had nothing, so I used to beg. Interestingly, in India, if you're a good beggar, people really honor you. <laughs> it's a culture shock when I came back to America. <laughs> but I remember I was in a little area near Badarsana. There was a village called Manpur. And I was with a beautiful man named Shaki Sharan, who was a Babaji sadhu. And he took me on madukari, that means begging for food. And we went to this, this little village, and we went to a house with little begging bowls. And the, the lady at the house was so excited, she started to cry, and she invited us in and gave us a nice little straw mat, because they're really simple, poor farming people. And then she blew a conch shell, like, and, and all of her children and her husbands and her uncles and her aunts and her brother-in-laws and sister-in-law, they all came to the house to be with this, the beggars. That's the sadhus. They all came and they all came. And then they asked, you know, can you do kirtan? So 
So the person I was only a teenage guy, maybe 20 at the time, but the person I was with, he led kirtan and everyone was singing and all the children were playing these dolak and murtangas so expertly, like Gorvani and Vishwampar, <laughs> Kishore, and they were playing cartels and they were, it was beautiful. These children were incredible musicians. They were chanting. And then after the kirtan, they come and bring a scripture and put it in front of my begging partner and ask him to give a class in the Srimad Bhagavat and the Bhagavad Gita, and he speaks for about 10 minutes. And I was thinking, God, this is a lot of stuff to go through to get some bread. <laughs> but eventually, they gave us bread. <laughs> It's called roti, or chapati, but really thick, coarse chapatis, homemade, right there. And they gave it, and we were so happy. <laughs> trying to find, why did I tell that story? Srila Prabhupada and See, whenever there's fog, you need somebody who's not knows <laughs> how to process it. But Vrindavan was such a quiet, simple place. And people go to Vrindavan, especially in their old age, to die in those days. Now they go there to make money sometimes. <laughs> but in those days, there was no money to be made. You go there to die. And Prabhupada went to prepare himself journey. And he lived in a very, very holy place of Seva Kunj, Radha Damodar. Little rooms. He had a little room, a clay room. And there he wanted to have the Srimad Bhagavatam, the first canto or first part translated with explanations in English. So he worked for about six years on that. And he had no money. And somehow or other, he raised the money. It was three volumes, one and two, and he couldn't get anything for the third volume. So he went to Mumbai, where he heard of one very, very charitable devotee of Krishna. She was in the Pushti Mark, a follower of this, the, the lineage of Balabacharya, same as Shandas. Her name was Sumati Muraji. And she paid for the third volume. And he got it published. And one day, <clears throat> he was in Agra, which is where the Taj Mahal is, not far from Vrindavan. And he was at this Mr. Agarwal's house. And he gave a little talk to a few of Mr. Agarwal's friends and family. And afterward, Mr. Agarwal was pouring his heart out to Prabhupada. He said, Swamiji, I'm in such distress. My son, my only son, Gopal, he wanted to go to America, to a university, to become an engineer. And while he was in college, he got trapped by an American woman. <laughs> he got married, and now he lives in... Pennsylvania, <laughs> and he won't come home. So he was asking Prabhupada some, you know, mystical formula to get him back or something. <laughs> and Prabhupada, like that redwood tree, was always looking for opportunities. <laughs> he had no connections, he had no money, he but he was always looking for opportunity. So he said to Mr. Ogwell, oh, he lives in America. Can he sponsor a visa for me? <laughs> Mr. Ogwell was shocked. He didn't say anything. And Prabhupada didn't say anything. Three months later, Prabhupada was in Delhi, and he got a message that he was sponsored to come to America by Gopal Agarwal. Now, poor Gopal Agarwal, or lucky Gopal Agarwal. 
how you want to perceive it. His father was always sending him because every sadhu that would want to go to the West, he would ask. And he would always write to his son, and his son knew 100% for certain they would never come. So he signed sponsorship. But little did he know. So then Prabhupada went back to Mumbai and told Sumati Maharaj, you own the Skindia Steamship Company? It's a cargo ship, so it's not ocean liners. He said, well, I have a sponsorship letter. It was sponsored for one month, <laughs> maximum. He said, I could, get a, I could get a visa with this sponsorship letter. She said, well, you don't have a visa. So Prabhupada got a visa. And he said, please give me a passage on your ship. And she said one word, no. And whatever he said, she had one answer, no. And she gave her reasons. She said, you are very old. You're 69 years old. You're soon going to be 70. You're not in good physical health. It's 38 days on sea in a cargo ship. And I've already discussed it with my secretaries and my employees, and they all are telling me, no, he's a saintly person. We'll be responsible for his death if we allow him on that ship. And when you get to New York, she, this is what she said. This is not what I'm saying. She said, the weather is cold and the people are cold. <laughs> she said, no one will listen to you. You will fail. You will die. No, just stay here in Bombay. I'll help you print all the rest of your volumes. <laughs> but no, I will not let you go. But he persisted. He would stand, he would sit on her steps, and she would invite him in for food, and he would say, after you give me a ticket on the ship. <laughs> and after some time, finally, she agreed. There was obstacles at every step. To get the visa was not easy. He needed to get a P form. Now these are technical bureaucratic um, subjects of India. That means you have to have the State Bank of India clear you financially. And they told him, you're getting an individual to sponsor? No way. You have to have an institution to sponsor you. So he said, I want to see your superior officer. He said, I want to see the top person in the government for the bank. So he went to see that person, because everybody else below him refused. And the person said, all right, Swamiji, I'll give you your people. So then he took a train. Sumati Maharaji said, our, we have a boat leaving from Calcutta on August the 13th, 1965. It happened to be Friday the 13th, too, which was very auspicious. <laughs> so he took the mail train. That doesn't mean like male, female. That means <laughs> postal mail. And they're the slowest trains in India. If any of you have been on a mail train, you know. From Mumbai to Calcutta takes about 50 hours on the mail train. And when he got there, he went to Mayapur, which is about four hours away, to the samadhi of his guru, who gave him the order. And there he spent the day praying for blessings. And he went to Lord Chaitanya's birthplace and prayed for blessings. And he went to one great avatar named Adwaita Charya. And he was just standing in the back of the temple praying. And the Pujari wrote later, he told, he said, 
When I was young, I used to see this family person on a regular basis coming about once or twice a year and just standing and praying at the back of the temple room. He never said anything to anyone. And then for some years, I didn't see him at all. And then, in 1965, I saw him. But now he had a shaved head, and he had a saffron robes, and he was a swami. And he was in the back praying, just like he always prayed. So I asked him, you know, tell me. Who are you? <laughs> I've been watching you for about 25 years. <laughs> and Prabhupada said, my guru has given me an impossible mission. I have no money, I know no one, but I'm going to America to spread <coughs> the teachings of Bhagavad Gita and the Hare Krishna Mantra. He said, it's impossible, but I'm praying for blessings. Then he went back to Calcutta. August 13th, just a couple weeks ago, I was in Calcutta, where we had a wonderful celebration in memory of Prabhupada's going on that boat. In the morning, I went to the same dockyard where the boat took off. It was called Jaladuta. And that day, because so many people wanted to come, the largest indoor stadium, because it's the monsoon rainy season, you can't do anything outside. And through the day, 30,000 people were there. And one of the people who came and spoke was Brindavan Chandra Day, Prabhupada's son. Because when Prabhupada went on that boat, everyone thought he's going to die. It's impossible. No one ever did this before. So <clears throat> nobody came to see him off except three people who worked for the steamship company and his youngest son. His youngest son picked him up on a taxi and brought him to the dockyards. And the two of them went on the ship together. And Prabhupada only had 40 rupees. And he told his son, in America, nobody wants rupees, so this is worthless. According to Vrindavan Chandra Day, he gave his son the rupees. <laughs> and a couple hours later, the ship began to move. In the Arabian Sea, it became stormy weather. And Srila Prabhupada, who had just a little tiny apartment, a little room in this cargo ship, and it was an old, weather-beaten cargo ship at the time. And he got really seasick. There was no doctors, no medicines. And then he had a series of major heart attacks, and there was no one to help him. He kept a diary, and that diary was discovered later. And for seven days, there's just a squiggly line going down because he couldn't even write anything. And then he writes, on August 31st, I think the 25th, he had the heart attack in the series, two heart attacks. And on the 31st, he wrote that he has just passed through a life-threatening experience. And 50 years ago today, because I just did a little study, <laughs> I 
On September 6, 1965, this is the 50th anniversary today of the first time Prabhupada was able to eat in over a week, in about 10, 12 days. He said, I made some kitchery, <laughs> rice and dal, and I relished it, and I'm feeling renewed energy now for my mission. At this time, he was, the ship was in the Mediterranean Sea. And he wrote, when he came to the Atlantic Ocean, he wrote, the ship is sailing smoothly today, but I am feeling so much separation from Vrindavan. And my beloved Radha Govinda, and Damodar and Kopinath. But it is my guru's wish, and it's the prediction of Lord Chaitanya that the names of Krishna will be chanted in every town and village in the world. So I am coming to serve that prediction, to serve that mission. So I am very happy, so far from Vrindavan, so far from my home in Vrindavan, across the Atlantic. And in September 17th, after 38 days at sea, he arrived in Boston and wrote a beautiful little prayer a prayer to Krishna. He never expected anyone to see it or read it. Because here he was, about to come to America, and when he saw Boston, there's no city like that in India in 1965. It's, you know, he's just 70 year old, sickly Swami. <laughs> and he didn't know if anyone would he didn't even, he never met an American in his life. He didn't know a single person. And he had no money. And in this prayer, he's saying to Krishna that, I don't know why you brought me here, but I'm here. <laughs> and I have no power to speak to these people. Only if you speak through me and give them the understanding to understand your message will they understand. He said, I'm just your puppet. And you, Krishna, my only prayer is make me dance as you want me to dance. And he signed it. He said, I have no devotion, bhakti, and I have no true knowledge, Vedanta, but you, but you have given me this name, Bhakti Vedanta. He said, but I have one thing. I have complete faith in Krishna's holy names. Now it is up to you, Krishna, to fulfill the meaning of my name, Bhaktivedanta. And he signed, your insignificant beggar, A.C. Bhaktivedanta Swami. They were in Boston for a day, and then the ship continued on to New York City. And when he was coming off the ship, he didn't know if anyone would even be there. He said he, would, he looked right, he looked left, and he didn't see anyone. He just, you know, the docks of New York are not the most inviting places. It's not for passengers, it's for cargo. He said, but I had faith in Krishna's name. And I had faith in the will of my guru. 
and there was this hired person from Traveler's Aid who met him. And he brought him to the Skindia Shipping Lines office, and the person said, when do you want your return voyage? Because Prabhupada only was being sponsored for one month. And when he got to Boston, the immigration person said, how long do you want your visa for? Prabhupada was thinking, I'm only sponsored one month, and he's asking me how much I want. So he was thinking, I'm going to really try to stretch it as much as I could. And he didn't think, you know, he didn't know what was happening. He told the immigration person, I would like a visa for two months. So they gave him a visa for two months. <laughs> so then he was put on a Greyhound bus to Butler, Pennsylvania. How many of you have been to Butler, Pennsylvania? <laughs> This is the most people I've ever had. <laughs> audience who's been. I never heard of Butler Pass. Of course, I'm from Illinois. <laughs> but anyways, just recently, Gopal's wife, who's a Christian lady, American lady, Sally Agarwal, she was shocked. When she got a telegram from Pro, from Swamiji, that was his name then, that he's actually coming. She called Gopal and said, this Swami, you know, one of the Swamis you sponsor, one of these sadhus, he's actually coming. He's actually on a ship. He's going to be here. What are we going to do with him? And Gopal said, I don't know. <laughs> so when Prabhupada came, in the middle of the night, he arrived in the Pittsburgh bus station. Gopal Agarwal was waiting for him <laughs> and drove him home and sadly looked at him because this was 1965. Mm -hmm. Sally later said, as far as she knew, in 1965, her husband was the only Indian in the whole of Pennsylvania. <laughs> And people were really curious about him. And he was like really trying to be an American. And here's the Swami and shaved head and robes and clay sanctified um, on his forehead and wearing these little pointed white shoes. <laughs> and she was thinking, Everybody in Butler, Pennsylvania is going to be asking me, who is this person? What is he here for? We've never seen anything like this. And she didn't want to get involved in it. So you know what she did? She called the newspaper to interview him. The Butler Eagle. <laughs> no, I'm going to try again. How many of you have read The Butler Eagle? <laughs> I've never gotten so many positive <laughs> affirmations. <laughs> and she said, the reason I did that is then everybody would know who he is, what he's here for, and nobody would bother me. <laughs> so that's the kind of situation it was. And they put him in the YMCA hotel. And he, but he would come to their house to cook because there was no kitchen in the YMCA hotel. And the whole refrigerator was full of meat and fish and chickens and, and eggs and all those things. And he never saw those things before. He was born and raised in a family of very deep devotees of Krishna. And usually swamis won't even go in a house with like that. Traditionally. So you know what he did? Like the redwood tree. It's a pretty foggy situation. <laughs> the kitchen, the refrigerator was really foggy. <laughs> so he made, with his own hands, an incredible vegetarian feast for the whole family. And they never tasted anything so wonderful in their lives. 
And then he said, I'll cook for you every day if you fill the refrigerator only with the things I'll cook for you. So they think, really? Oh, that's great. <laughs> so he didn't criticize them. He just gave them something positive. And they emptied their, actually he didn't even ask them to empty the refrigerator, I'm sorry. He just cooked for them and they understood. So they said, we don't need these things. And the whole time he was there, he was cooking for the whole family. He would have to walk about one mile from the YMCA hotel to their house. And what Prabhupada did, because he wanted to be relevant to the American people, but he never met a, Sally Agarwal was the only American he ever met. So he studied Sally. <laughs> he studied the whole Western world through Sally. <laughs> he gave an analogy for this. He said, just like if you want to study the content of the ocean, you take one drop. So she was the drop. And she just, he just watched her and one day, you know, he was cooking and he heard, what's that? He came out and she had a vacuum cleaner. He never saw a vacuum cleaner. I said, what's this? She said, it's a vacuum cleaner. I said, what was this for? It's to clean the carpet. He said, well, why don't you use a broom like everyone else? <laughs> He said, Swamiji, that's not how we do things in America. He said, all right, all right. <laughs> and another time, Sally Agarwal, every day, her living room would flood with water. It would come out of the bathroom. And she didn't know what was going on in the bathroom. But never in her life did she see water pouring out from the floor, from under the door. So one day she just said, you know, Swamiji, what are you doing in the bathroom? I said, I'm taking my bath. That's what you do in the bathroom. <laughs> she said, how do you take your bath? And he said, like everyone does. And he showed her, you fill up the bathtub, then you stand outside the bathtub and you have a cup and you pour it on your That's the way, way everyone does it in India. She said, Swamiji, in America, we stand in the bathtub. <laughs> and Swamiji said, what? You stand in the bathtub? <laughs> you stand in where the water is? And she said, yes. And another day, she heard this noise in the bathroom. <laughs> Swamiji, what are you doing? He said, I'm washing my clothes. And you know, in India, sadhus, they beat their clothes on rocks on the riverbank. So he was beating his clothes on the bathroom floor. And she said, that's not how we do it in America. So she took him to the laundromat. And he saw all these clothes going. And it was, like, it was shocking. What's ordinary for us was shocking for him. But Sally Agarwal, she said, I loved him more than my own father. He was so totally non-judgmental and compassionate and kind and gracious. And then he was there for three weeks and he decided to come to New York City. And Sally said, I was so worried about him. How will he survive in New York City? Prabhupada had one contact. Would you like to hear? Some of you will be really happy to hear. When he was in Mumbai, which in those days was Bombay, and he got his clearance, he was asking people if they knew anyone in America. And in those days, nobody in India knew anyone in America. But there was a Paramananda Mehta, and he owned a bookstore small, tiny religious bookstore. And he said, I know someone in New York City. He said, 
I don't know how to contact him so much, but I'll write you a little letter introducing you to him. That's all Prabhupada had. So somehow or other, he, he sent a letter by post to this person from Butler, Pennsylvania. His name was Dr. Ram Murti Mishra. And Dr. Mishra wrote back and said, yes, I have a yoga studio. You come, we'll, we'll serve together. So Prabhupada went to Philadelphia first and then to New York. And one of the students of Dr. Mishra met Prabhupada at the bus station. He was a sannyasi too. His name was Brahmananda Saraswati. And they became very, very close friends. Philosophically, they had a lot of disagreements. <laughs> <laughs> but they loved each other. And I saw a beautiful video of an interview with Brahmananda Saraswati. And he was saying that Swamiji was so loving and kind. He loved Krishna so much. And when he was with me, I, get, I became so sick. I was actually dying. And I was really thin. And Swamiji was cooking for me every day. Not only cooking, but he would come to my room and you know, I was laying in bed and he would say, it's now time for you to eat. You must eat. <laughs> and he said the food was so full of love and it was such an excellent meal every day. And he said, his food and his love saved my life. And that's why I'm living today. So this is interesting to me. Because they had different schools of thought philosophically. And they would sometimes have little debates among each other philosophically, whether God's personal or impersonal. But beyond that, they loved each other as friends, as brothers. And after some time, Dr. Mishra went to Europe and Prabhupada just had a tiny little room I think on 70, West 72nd Street in Manhattan. And there was no windows, and there was no bathroom. It was pretty simple. And he was thinking, I need something more. <laughs> so eventually he met someone. Actually, while he was there, he was typing a manuscript of Bhagavad Gita translation. And while he was gone, someone stole his typewriter and his manuscript. <coughs> so then he got an offer to live with this young boy, a teenager, in the Bowery, in a loft. And he was there for a little while. And like the redwood tree in the fog, this Bowery loft was really simple. Loft means just one room. <laughs> and you just kind of divide it with whatever you can to make other rooms. And he was so excited. You know, he had a place and he was writing back to India. We have a place. Let's do something together. And everybody said, forget it. You know, we can't help you. It's impossible. Nobody would help with anything. And then that boy... He took LSD and he went completely crazy and threatened Swamiji's life. Now he's like 71 years old. So he moved out. But he was always seeing opportunities. And eventually he was living with someone else. It was a boy and a girl. And they were living in the same room with Swamiji, and they knew Swamiji's spiritual standards. And they didn't, you know, they were unmarried, they were taking drugs, they were doing so much. And it was kind of embarrassing to be sharing the same room with Swamiji. So they thought, we have to get him a place. 
So somehow or other, they came together, a few of the people, and they got a little tiny storefront, 26th Second Avenue in the Lower East Side. When Swamiji was still living in the Bowery, there was a Jewish immigrant from Turkey who's, who later on told the story. Prabhupada, Swamiji was sitting on a park bench and he sat next to him. And he said, Swamiji, what are you, what are you doing? Because you look really different. And Swamiji said that I have hundreds of temples all over the world and thousands and thousands of followers and the names of Krishna being chanted gradually in every town and village in the world. He said, only a little bit of time is separating us. <laughs> in his most desperate moments, with all humility, that was his positive, hopeful thinking and his faith in God. And in 22nd Avenue, Allen Ginsberg, who was a countercultural poet, he got a little, he heard about Swamiji. And he came. And when he heard Swamiji chanting the Hare Krishna mantra, he was so excited. Because he went to India and he learned the Hare Krishna mantra. And in his own little way, Allen Ginsberg was chanting Hare Krishna mantra in, around America. But Prabhupada had such a teaching and such a philosophy. Way. Swamiji, he had just a couple people with him, and they went to Washington Square Park to chant. He just had a little bongo drum that somebody gave him. And there was a sign that said, don't sit on the grass. But all these young people were doing all kind of romantic things in the grass. <laughs> So Prabhupada sat on the grass and he's playing his Madonna, chanting Hare Krishna, Hare Krishna, Krishna Krishna, Hare Hare, Hare Ram, Hare Ram, Ram Ram, Hare Hare. And a couple of people were kind of listening and then the police came and said, can't you read? And he pointed to the sign. So this distinguished scholar and saint from Vrindavan had to get off the grass and sit on the sidewalk and continue. And little by little, I remember when I first met him in Vrindavan in 1971. I think it was a journalist. There was just about six or seven of us in the room with him. And he came back to Vrindavan. And this journalist asked him, are you the guru for the whole world? And Prabhupada looked down on the ground, really sincere. He had just such a humble expression, tears in his eyes. He said, no, I'm just everyone's servant, that's all. And I remember when he said that, I was thinking, he is the guru for the whole world. <laughs> At least he could be, because he was completely humble and devoted to Krishna, to, to, to God. It was 50 years ago that he left on that boat. It was 50 years ago that he came here to New York. And today's his appearance day. And speaking about the redwoods and the fogs, I was thinking this is a really intimate connection. Thank you very much.